probably live with your family, you hang out with your buddies, and on Saturday night you go and you blow it all off 2001, right? That's right. He's very good, yeah. He's the best. Hey, man, he's great. He's the king out there. Hello and welcome to episode 180 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in a very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and a producer. I'm Robbie McCain, director, producer. And today I'm absolutely delighted to tell you our guest is the fantastic John Badham. Now, not only has John directed Saturday Night Fever, War Games, Short Circuit, Dracula, no less, uh, Stakeout, Bird on a Wire, but also TV including Heroes, 12 Monkeys, Arrow, Constantine, and very, very recently, Siren and Supernatural. He is an absolute legend. Uh, not only that, but he's, he's written three amazing books, including uh, On Directing, which we're talking about quite a bit on this episode, but also his fantastic book, I'll Be In My Trailer. They're both amazing. Highly, highly recommend. Quite the resume. And we are delighted to get him on. And he talks so in-depth all about his process as a filmmaker. Honestly, you're in for an absolute treat, aren't they, Robbie? Yeah, absolutely. And also, he's just a really nice, considerate guy as well. On top of all of that, that's what you're getting. And he's so down to earth. He was, yeah. I felt like I knew him at Mm. the end of our chat. I felt like he was just one of those fun, wonderful people. Maybe a teacher, maybe an uncle. He was just Mm. so cool. Absolutely. And what a guy. Well, he does actually teach professionally as well, so and you can tell that in his voice. He's very good at communicating his, his process and his yeah. ideas. We talk about some amazing things, but what, for me, struck me from this episode, and you guys will learn from this, is he gave some amazing advice for directors and producers on working with actors and what to say, the right kind of words, and honestly, it's vital and so important. He talked about that, um, how to give notes on set, and also to always be learning as a director. He talks about his first feature start, which was originally a Steven Spielberg project, uh, working with Billy Dee Williams and James Earl Jones in a period piece where they were fighting for budget. Uh, And then he talks about working on Saturday Night Fever and having to scout for discos at two in the morning in order to find the right location. Any excuse to go to a disco, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, no, I'm I'm making a film. I have to go to discos at two in the morning. I have to. (laughs) In the 70s. I love it. Apparently there's a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah, I can imagine. Are you going out to discos? You're not going to be sleeping, are you? You're going to be dancing. (laughs) Cue the Bee Gees music. He also talks in depth about how every actor is different and they will be till the day you die. Um, He talks about Dracula quite a lot as well and working with Laurence Olivier um, and then also John Travolta on Saturday Night Fever. And he talks about uh, action scenes as well and how you direct those. What a guy. And if you subscribe to the Patreon, we've got a special bonus episode for you this week, specifically on how he directs his TV projects and the difference between that and his feature film projects. So make sure you head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the filmmakers podcast to get access to that. Also up there, uh, if you aren't a patron um, subscriber yet, thank you so much for those who are, but is the full Mark Strong episode uh, uncut 
Mark Strong going Off in depth about working with Danny Boyle. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Me messing up mainly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, working with Danny Boyle, working with uh, Ridley Scott and some amazing other directors as well. It's so cool. Thank you for those who listened last week to our episode with Jed Shepard. Now, he is the producer and screenwriter of the lockdown hit, all made on Zoom called host if you haven't yet do go listen it's amazing how to make a, a micro budget indie film in lockdown um but i've got some shout outs for people this week thank you so much for your support collaborators ian de leon low light dave diane knight ryan green kiri nallis and chris hughes he was talking about a patron page because it's just a couple of quid by the way to to come and support us phil hawkins who's a regular co-host on this program thank you for your support this week elia colazar uh, green thank you so much for your email huge i love that when we get emails with full support dan Carza. Uh, and of course, Repeat Movie, which is a movie I'm producing. Richard Miller is directing. I'm producing that with Lucinda Rhodes Takra. And um, we are shooting in about three weeks' time. How amazing Ooh, is that? Exciting. We're shooting in three weeks' time on Repeat Movie. Huge news. Casting announcements are happening this week. Very, very exciting. Talking of exciting news, we have amazing guests coming up, don't we, Robbie? Well, next week, we've got the amazing Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, directors of Half Nelson and Captain Marvel. Amazing. Yeah, that amazing. one's, one's going to be a good one. Of course, oh, this yes. one as well. We've got a whole roll, you know, it was a whole stream of amazing episodes coming out. Absolutely. After that, we're going to have Sarah Gavron, the amazing director of Suffragette and her new film, Rocks. Yeah, she was amazing to talk to about that. Mm. And also coming up for you is Aaron Scotty, the producer of The Peanut Butter Falcon, who was on our Make Your Film event recently, but now he's coming to do the podcast. And joining him will be John Liversay. And they're going to be talking about how you can pitch your project to anyone. Amazing. That is all coming up for you. Super exciting. So joining us on this episode, who isn't here for the intro, is director Matthew Butler Hart. He's not here because he's on his way to Greece because he's working, but he is co-hosting this episode. Now, Matthew is a director of Two Down, The Isle, and a brand new film that they have made in lockdown called Infinitum. Now, I wanted to talk to Matthew about that in this intro, but we will save it for him and Tory Butler Hart for another episode. That's what we'll do. We'll talk fully about Infinitum with them, how to do that. Also, their book, Brimming with Fizz Ginger and First Determination, is now on pre-order. It's available in 2021, but how cool is that? They've written a book, ladies and gentlemen. Some really cool people might be in that. Maybe uh, someone we might know. I don't know. Might, they might have cut me out. Spoiler alert, it's John. There's much better people than me in their book, though, to be fair. <laughs> So don't forget, John Badham's book is out now. It's called On Directing. There's more of this stuff he's talking about. It is so cool. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, join our Patreon page and you can hear more of John talking about TV as well. So put on your white suit, cue the disco lights, and let's get to the director of Saturday Night Fever, among many other amazing films, John Badham. Enjoy, everyone. This is an absolute delight to have with us on uh, this week's Filmmakers Podcast, John Badham. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's just a treat to be talking to all of you. It's a treat for us too. You're joined by Matthew Butler, who's also a director, and Robbie McCain, who's a producer, director, writer. Okay. Well, it must be a good time for you, John, then, to release a book, though I imagine you wrote this 
uh, I mean, I saying that you've even written in there about 1917 and films that have just come out. So were you writing it up to the wire until we literally got this brilliant copy of On Directing, your brand new book here? Were you writing up to the wire? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, I did something I shouldn't have done, which is I kept teaching and trying to write at the same time. And I'm never doing never doing that again. Uh, uh, so yeah. Just too many things, too many things at once. But uh, because if there's any bright spot to the to the pandemic, it's because I've had to stay home, and we've had to you know been able to do work on uh, on the publicity and and just starting to get the book ready to go out. And uh, this is this is this the second edition? Is this right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, it, it and, is. And, and this is the new parts of this. The more the television, is that, those are the new bits, aren't they? Yeah. Well, the main the main new bit is. Uh, talking to directors who have only experience in doing independent films or feature films, but have not ventured into the world of the streaming world, which includes, you know, episodic television, but all of the streaming channels and so on, that uh, is a whole different kind of uh, political setup than, mm. than the feature world. And, and it's a culture shock for people going into that. My students, when I describe to them what they can expect in this world, are absolutely horrified because they're so used to the, you know, the 100-year the model of the director as auteur, or maybe not 100 years, maybe maybe half of that. But uh, yeah. anyway, the, the director is suddenly finding themselves much further down the food chain than they, than they may be used to or they think that the you know the books tell them that they can be like John Ford and and Otto Preminger or even James Cameron mm. um, and and Quentin Tarantino you know directors who can do whatever they please and have earned the right to it. Uh, what's so lovely is it's always a, it's about people rather you know so many of the other books are so sort of technical and practical um, which this is as well but that's what our industry is and, and this that's what this books have you know just does so so beautifully i think you know remind you okay this is the, the core of it you know your relationships with actors especially did you you went and trained at, was it a yale drama school yes um was was that as a director or or as an actor or was there it was as a director as a yes and there, there was there were no film programs uh, at Yale, certainly not at the drama school. I mean, the closest thing we had would be film history. And that was viewed right. as, you know, one of those silly courses where you took when you wanted the easiest <laughs> thing in the world to take. <laughs> A bit like performing arts now. Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. Yes. That's uh, what I they did. were, <laughs> you know, known as gut courses. But is that where you're known as a, an actor's director? And it's so evident in the films, which is, which is brilliant. You know, even like Blue Thunder, you know, the action mm. sort of films. It's, it's so, still so sort of character led, which is brilliant. W was it the, dra the Yale drama side of it that sort of, infused that uh, sort of enthusiasm for, for actors, you know, working with actors properly? Oh, I, I, I absolutely think so. And, uh, you know, I had brief ambitions to do some acting myself and was doing it in the drama school and as an undergraduate at Yale. But I could tell right. that friends of mine, like, like Sam Waterston, for example, uh, you know, they were getting all the lead roles and I was I was getting, Bastards. you know, the secondary roles and, you know, the, the sensible part of me, of which is very small, said, I don't think you should be trying to make a living doing this. 
but <laughs> but this okay. this directing thing is kind of fun and i'm and i'm enjoying doing that and that's where i you know started to focus so so when i went to the drama school i went as a director which must Not. have been great because there can't have been many of you directors there. So I suppose you could really hone your craft. And like Matt says, was that where you learned to really understand actors or is that by a long period of working with them over the time that you have made films and TV? Directors should do some acting themselves, even if they're terrible. Yeah. You know, take acting classes, acting classes where they are forced to get up on stage. They can't sit in the back row and just kind of, go hmm, 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 hmm. but <laughs> rhubarb they, rhubarb rhubarb yeah <laughs> they they actually actually have to get up there and understand what it takes i mean at, at the at the drama school we learned enormous respect for our actors and what it takes to go through and we had to take acting classes ourselves mm. uh but you know the the bond between the actor and the director is so powerful and one of the first things I noticed when I started uh, being around television and, and films is that uh, many directors are just terrified of actors. They're, they're very technically oriented. They understand how the camera works. They understand film stocks mm. and sound and all kinds of technical things. But actors are, have these horrible, horrible things that have opinions. And, <laughs> and a voice that's loud. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and a voice, you know, you, you can't just set the F-stop on the actor and go. Sadly, sadly. Me and Matt know this because we were actors for a long time. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons I stopped being an actor was kept encountering directors who just, you know, were more fiddling around with all the camera far more than the actors. Like, I just, I can't, I don't enjoy this part of, you know, I want to tell stories and this is just, mm. yeah, didn't enjoy it. Do you find having that acting experience, uh, John, uh, gives you a bit more empathy when you're on set then? Like, you know exactly oh. what an actor could be going through in a difficult situation. Absolutely, and that they're they're not robots, and and they're not machines that you can just switch on, switch off. They have feelings, and they're creative people. Even even the least of us has some creativity there, and uh, it's just only sensible to listen and 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 give some credence to what they're bringing to you, and and allow them to try things out, even on the fastest television schedule. If an actor comes to me with an idea that's perfectly horrible, I'll often <laughs> just pretty much let them try it, you know, because their their own sense of what's good and what's bad often, you know, eliminates it. But they got the chance to try it out. Mm. And that's so important for building trust and, yep. and working with them over, over several days. Um, say, okay, all right. My, my answer to somebody who comes in with, with a god-awful idea uh, that I, in my, my younger self, my more cynical self would, would have said, oh, God, that'll never work. Oh, that's terrible. Now I go, you know, I never thought of it that way. Tell me more. Mm, clever. And, yeah. and I, I tell you, it works miracles. That's really touching. And even just if they get to try it out, and you say, you know, I don't think that works. The fact that you allowed them to try it makes them, you know, so much happier. You know, yeah. this idea they've been carrying around in their head for, you know, a few hours or a couple of days of something. You know, they're not resenting you for, for not allowing them. 
you know, that's one that's one thing in a theatrical rehearsal. You know, actors can try anything because you have plenty of time. Mm-hmm. But even yeah. when you don't have plenty of time, it's amazing what you can try out and abandon and and work your way through. And and do you know what's wonderful in your your other book? I suppose it would be your second book. Uh, I'll be in my trailer. Really goes into depth on what actors are going through and how directors should work with actors as obviously on directing book does as well um i I think that's really interesting i'd love to talk to you about your thoughts on uh the acting side and some of the tips that are in the book that you can give as a little tease to uh directors and producers and filmmakers out there of why they should get the book but but also because i think it's just great advice we didn't know how much we could talk about some of the brilliant stuff that's in this book so we thought we'd leave it to you to say which bits of advice would you like to to say well uh aside from what we've just been talking about which is Mm -hmm. really listening to your actors and 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 giving them giving them the respect instead of just riding over them there are things that work with actors well and there are things that work with actors terribly for example what we like to call result directing uh Mm -hmm. result directing is something that uh you, you may say to the actor, okay, that was pretty good. Let's go faster this time. Or, uh, you know, this could be a lot more excited. Uh, or, mm-hmm. or as I once heard the dean of, of the Yale Drama School, who had retired many decades ago, but it, actually I heard him say to the actor, okay, now the next time, let's do this one uh, faster and, and funnier. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed and, it. And, I've got and, it. And if you can, and if you can make it better. <laughs> if you can. Faster and more uh, yes. successful. I mean, you know, that, that just leaves an actor puzzled as to what in the hell you mean. I mean, faster. Uh, yeah, he speaks faster. That doesn't mean it's going to be any better. It probably means he's going to lose some of the nice moments that he had. Uh, what indeed, what indeed you need to do better is learn how to use what we'd like to call active verbs. Use a better version of the verb they should be doing. For example, I'm trying to uh, talk a, a girl into going to uh, out for coffee with me or for, for a drink. And uh, I'm trying to talk her into it. Well, now if I want to upgrade that, I'm not going to talk her into it. I'm going to persuade her. I'm going to seduce her. Uh, I'm going to beg her. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to upgrade that verb. And, and that's something that the actor has to work with. Now, uh, it's much better than, you know, go faster. You know, go give me more. Give me more. Mm. Give me more just means you push. But yes. whatever your choice is, is going to be is a much more. Uh, creative kind of image for the actor to work with. Yeah, it's so beautifully simple as well. It's a lot of drama training, the actors, you know, they have to action their scripts as well. So it's it's immediately talking their language and they go, oh, oh hang on, that that I can understand. Okay, right, I've got to do an action on this. Okay, great. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. a great way of looking at it. And I, and that's part, of, that's part of the, you know, tuning into the actor's language that the actor understands. You know, the, uh, there's a wonderful, a wonderful book called the action thesaurus yeah and so the actor can be kind of going through and finding verbs well of course i use that too i might as well you know cop from their book and and get things that they that they understand uh, 
and not be giving these lazy directions like be, so be more excited here as directors we have to really work our, our craft and understand what the actors are going through and i'm so glad you brought in the verb as a as a doing as an action to help actors because it is it's one of the best and it's fantastic and like matt says actors understand it so thank you yeah it's a good one which is also why i don't know i was like as soon as i read that because i've got that on the bookshelf from my acting days i was like of course that's what i should have been doing for the last 10 years rather than rambling on like a maniac on set trying to direct people totally. Just and that was some, something else you mentioned as well um john that, that matt was saying there we can ramble on too much mm -hmm. we can give the actor too much information and just go off and oh it's this and that happened and remember in 1984 that happened no 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 what am i doing what's the doing word here and you you yes. explain that very well that's right i mean what what do you what can the actor do in this scene for right now mm. it doesn't matter that when a, as a child he wet the bed <laughs> or the dad dad beat him i mean no. backstories but, are useless at that point but in this scene <laughs> i need you to uh give you know and you get you give them a, a verb to work with then that that's going to work of course we talk too much directors are just horrible about talking too much i'm, well, I'm trying i'm trying to train my students in any any direction you give an actor once you're in takes not in rehearsal but in takes mm -hmm. any direction you give an actor has got to be in 10 seconds or less because after 10 seconds, I think, is the limit at which point you can watch your actor's eyes glaze over. Yep, yep. And they're, and they're starting to think about checking their email, <laughs> you know, you know, wondering what's for lunch, at, wonder what craft service has over to offer today. Mm. You know, they're not listening to you. No, and I think that's, I think that's really interesting that we we want to be heard sometimes as directors and we all oh, we feel like we should be saying something and this is this something you've learned over your time is sometimes you don't need to say anything at all because when you're starting out you feel like you should be saying something to the actors tell them anything tell them something um and otherwise they won't think you know what you're doing have you learned over time that actually it's okay to say nothing or just to go that was great moving on i think i think it's very important to talk to every actor after every take that's mm. that's a key thing that I learned from Sidney Lumet's book. And as we know, Sidney Lumet shot films faster than anybody uh, ever did. You know, he, he would shoot films in 30 days that any other director would take 50 days to shoot. So you think, how in the hell did he have time to talk to every actor after every take? And he's doing 30 days and I've got eight days. Uh, and, but I said, well, it is Sidney Lumet, you know, okay, well, let's try it. And I found, you know what? All you have to do is kind of walk past somebody on the set and touch them on the shoulder, you know, if they're doing okay, you know, or give them a little thumbs up and, and spend a few seconds with somebody who, who really can use a note. But the persons, all the people who don't need notes, they need encouragement too. They need to know that, no, that went, that went pretty well. And it doesn't take any more than just like a touch or a, or a nod. But, you know, otherwise you as an actor, and, and if you've done acting, you know what I mean. You're standing there at the end of the take and it's totally quiet. Nobody says anything except, except the bloody director is talking to the DP over in the background about some flare that came off the light that doesn't matter at all. And you're, and you're the actor thinking, 
They're talking about me. They're talking about how terrible I was. <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. It's so awful. They won't even say anything. Yeah. And you're not at all. But that's how what the actor thinks. So, as you say, the best thing to do straight away is to say, well done. That was great. I'm just going to have a chat with my DP and I'll come and talk to you. There you if go. If you need yeah. to, right? So, that's okay. what speeds things that's up. Right. Everyone's going, okay, we're, oh, we're fine. Okay, no problems. That's, what, that's how you can yes. do things much faster. Yeah. You know, there's an old there's an old management tool, which is called catch your catch your employees doing something right. Don't catch them doing something wrong, but catch them doing something right. So, you know, you can say to the, you know, I love the way when you went to the door and you turned around and you gave them that look. That was really nice. So if you can be specific beyond that was great. That was a really nice take. I like that. If you can give them specific commendations, then that's that's going to help tremendously and it gives them something to hang on to. When you made your first uh, feature film, the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, um, that was the name of your, your first Good job. Movie. Good job. Yeah. The whole title, too. Yeah, the whole title, everything. Do you just call it the bingo? <laughs> One of the few conversations I, I ever had with a film critic, she begged me, you know, please don't have the title that long. It's too long. She was right. She was absolutely right. But <laughs> of course. <laughs> it doesn't fit on a tweet, you know? Yes. <laughs> obviously not back then. What I, I wanted to ask you is obviously what you learned there, because you kind of jumped straight in to making a feature, if you like. I, I mean, obviously you've done loads of bits and pieces before, but maybe you could fill us in on that how you learnt the process, what happened to you on that set, and then also moving on to Saturday into Saturday Night Fever as well, and how that came about, and obviously it did very, very well. My, my first directing was some hour television that was, uh, I was really lucky to be part of a, a very prestigious show called The Bold Ones, and, and I did uh, for two or three years uh, various episodic television shows of the time and then started this is the heyday of movies of the week and and i started doing exclusively those and they're mini movies they were 90 minutes or two hours two hours long and that started getting me uh offers of feature scripts so i had probably eight or ten of these uh movies of the week under my belt before the the first movie came along that I really liked. I turned down I turned down a lot because I had been taught by uh, by my friend Michael Ritchie, who was a, a wonderful director and kind of a mentor to me. That be really careful about what first movie you take, because as he said, the beaches are littered with the bodies of first time directors. <laughs> <laughs> It looks like Dunkirk there. Right. Wow. <laughs> Very <laughs> ominous. Bingo Long came came along. I think it was originally to be done by Spielberg, but he was in the middle of trying to get Jaws finished to go out, and that was taking all of his time. So he dropped out, and the producers came to me uh, to be a first-time director. And this this film I really loved and I, I thought it was really a wonderful, uh, not only historical piece, but had great characters and great fun and enthusiasm and, and the, the kind of comedy that I understand and that I love. The work in the, in the movies of the week said, okay, I can expand beyond episodic television, but I can also do this feature film 
in the short time that they want to give us to do it. They wanted to give us like 38 days and everybody said, oh, that's too tough. And I thought 38, I never had 38 in my life. <laughs> I, I thought I was lucky when I had 24. Of course I can do it in 38. When, and my, my production manager kept saying, they're lying to you, it's 52 days. It's, it's really gonna be 52. I said, well, we promised we'd do it 38. He said, it's 52. He was right, it was 52. Because what I didn't, what I didn't understand at that point was that, yeah, you can do the dialogue scenes uh, in, in the same kind of quick schedule that you're used to, but baseball takes a lot of time. And I imagine it would, whether soccer or cricket or basketball, to mm -hmm. shoot it properly where you're interested in the characters, not just recording the game, yes. uh, takes a lot of time. And, and so we were, we were way over schedule, which was a lot of screaming and shouting. But, you know, we got the, we got the look of the movie. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, it didn't cost anybody that much money for our, our over schedule. And you had amazing stars, Richard Pryor, who else? James Earl Jones, Billy D. Williams. I mean, wow, for your first movie, even though I suppose you'd feel like you've already been making movies, the TV movie of the week. Did you feel like this was a step up? Did you feel like, oh, okay, yes. now, now I'm playing? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was exciting. You know, and, and actors that I, uh, you know, really respected, like, like James Earl Jones and, and, and Billy D., who was, you know, so romantic and so good looking, such a great, it was a wonderful combination. And meeting Richard Pryor, who at that point was not yet Richard Pryor, uh, uh. but was just starting to grow in people's conscience. You know, I already knew him as, a, you know, hysterically funny and insightful comedian uh, with a biting kind of wit that, that was laced in with, with the humor of his. So that it was, you know, really exciting to be working with them. And there's, you know, all of them so professional. Which must have been so much fun. Was that for uh, Lou Wasserman as well at Universal? Was it all, all done under the Universal umbrella? Or did they just pick it up afterwards? Uh, it, was, it was a joint venture between Universal and Motown. Motown pictures that uh, Rob Cohen was the, the head of mm -hmm. uh, under Barry Gordy. Motown Pictures found the book and and bought the book. They didn't take an option on it. They bought it. And, right. And then uh, Rob's, Rob's uh, rationalization at the time was, if we just take an option, it'll laze around here and never get made. But if I buy it, they'll be screwed with, you know, we just spent $75,000 for a book. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we have to make it. Instead of some cheesy $10,000 annual option that people could write off. So Universal said, we'll make it if we can make it for $4 million. Wow. And, All right. And they, they gave it a price because it was a period picture. It's in the mm -hmm. 1939, you know, which means automobiles, locations. You know, we had to go into the, the heart of Georgia to find old baseball fields. So moving our whole company from LA to Georgia, that's expensive. Uh, and, and so that $4 million barely, barely got us through it. Eventually Motown had to go in and kick in a little bit of its own money. 
and say, okay, well, we'll pay for the composer and we'll pay Billy D. Williams salary because he's under contract to us. Uh, so there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. They couldn't take any of my money away because I was already working for scale. <laughs> right. So that first experience was been incredible. And when it released, was did it? Did you feel like okay, things like you say your first movie? Did you want that to escalate you to the next level of making more movies? Or obviously you did. It's a silly question, but um, I suppose what I'm trying to say was, did you expect it to do well? Did you have any kind of uh, expectations at all? What we knew was that. Uh, when when we played it for our preview audiences in in Detroit and LA and various Chicago that we went to, it was like going to heaven, going to movie heaven. These people screamed and shouted and laughed like I've never heard before. It was so delightful. Wow. Uh, the the picture always played for the black audiences beautifully, and uh, and. For some reason, it just did not work. White audiences were not interested. I did know that if you got them to in the theater and sat them down, they loved the movie. But mm, getting but them go to in. go, getting them to mm. go seemed to be a big problem. And, and, and in many cases where I had just kind of twisted people's arms to go, they would come back and say, oh, I loved it so much. I didn't want to go when you told me. I didn't want to go. But, you know, just to make you feel better. And, and you said, well, that's just happened across the world. So now at the, after that movie is out, I'm almost back to square one. Only I've made that big step of going from TV movies into features and don't particularly want to go back and don't want to backslide. Mm. So I'm really there sort of scratching, scratching my head what to, what to do next. And... I managed to talk uh, Motown into buying the the movie rights to The Wiz. Uh, oh wow! Yes, okay. and and we had uh, in in researching cast for Bingo Long. I had seen The Wiz on Broadway a couple of times, mm. and we used two or three of the actors who won Tonys for their roles in The Wiz. So. Mm. So Motown again paired up with Universal on that, and mm -hmm. we started we started working on and on it. And Rob Cohen and I were doing the adaptation of the script. Uh, and one day we get a call from from Universal saying we've cast your lead for you. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. Who is that? It's going to be Diana Ross. I said, you mean the thirty year old Diana Ross? who's going to play the 16-year-old, 15-year-old Judy mm -hmm. Garland that was actually mm -hmm. playing a five-year-old Dorothy in the original L. Frank Baum books. That's the that's the, the Diana Ross we're talking about. Yeah, that Diana Ross. Great actress, great singer, great person. But, you know, is she going to make Dorothy look anything other than neurotic? So that, that followed with, with basically... Uh, me wiggling out of doing doing that right. and uh and sydney lamette coming in and and taking it over and and being in charge of it and doing the film from there but i i was suddenly a, a you know <laughs> a persona non grata in 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 hollywood you know oh he's just too difficult if he's gonna wow. you know blow up this 
this wonderful musical opportunity. Mm, big budget as well. Yeah. And and and, and big budget, mm. though though interestingly enough, with me they wanted to do it for like under ten million dollars. And right. the final result was over twenty six million. Yeah. As to what they spent because they decided to do it in New York City. Uh make New York City look like the Big Apple. At the time, in the in the middle 70s, New York City didn't look like the Big Apple. It looked like the Big Sewer. Not, not a yeah, fun place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's, thank God it's improved a lot since then. But that yes. happened to be a, you know, so so trying to fix it up to, to look look really good um, was an expensive, expensive item. So I suppose you dodged a bullet, but sort of a not, you know, everyone's heard of the whiz, but yeah, not for the right reasons sometimes. And and I suppose around that time you were looking for other projects and then did Saturday Night Fever come your way? Did you develop it from the projects that it was? Was Robert Stigwood involved from the beginning? Um, tell us your journey on Saturday Night Fever. Well, I read the, the New York Magazine article that it's based on, which was called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. And I read that. It was a very interesting article about what goes on out in Brooklyn and, and a whole world. And I, and I said to people, you know, to do an adaptation of this for film, you'd have to be almost be a novelist. It's not a simple, you know, write scene numbers in the margins kind of, kind of thing. It will take a lot of inventing to flesh this out and make it interesting. I didn't hear any, any more about it because Robert Stigwood bought it and, and had in mind this young star that he had signed for Greece, John Travolta. And, and this would be a wonderful uh, thing to, for John to do before doing Greece, while they're waiting for Olivia Newton-John to become available in her concert schedule that summer. You know, they had, they had a window there. You can have her in the summer of 1978 or whatever, whatever it was. Uh, and so the, here we'll have this little movie that we'll do for a million and a half dollars, uh, in, in locally in Brooklyn, and it'll give John a good warm up and be fun for him to do. And they hired, uh, you know, a guy who had just proven he could do an amazing movie for a million and a half dollars was John Avildsen, and who had, who just had Rocky and had just gotten an Academy Award nomination for Rocky. So he was working on it with his favorite screenwriter Norman Wexler, who had done Joe and Serpico, uh, you know, wonderful, wonderful screenwriter. Uh, and when Norman came in with the draft, John really did not like it. And Robert Stigwood loved it. So there they kind of butted heads back and forth for a while. And even Robert let, let John go and hire another screenwriter to do a whole new script. It wasn't just a matter of a few changes. It was a, a whole different look. They just had different ways of looking at the film. And, and I think what I've learned since then is that, that John's view was the character was going to be a little more like Rocky, a little bit over the hill, uh, a little bit, you know, out of, out of sorts and, you know, trying to succeed in spite of himself. And, and Robert saw it as the way you saw it in the film. So, uh, one one day, apparently, it came to a head, and suddenly, this they're only like two and a half, three weeks out from production, and they part ways, 
And guess who gets the call over the weekend to come to New York and, you know, talk about doing doing that that script. And I had had some conversation with Robert before about maybe working on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Wow. Okay. And and it was just a conversation that didn't go any didn't go any further because I was one of the great, great fans of Sgt. Pepper. But this the script didn't work for me. I didn't I didn't really under, understand it. Fair enough. But but now they, they're coming. What do you think? And I read Norman Wexler's script and I absolutely fell in love with it. What do I know about Brooklyn? Nothing. What do right. I know about disco? Next to nothing. Mm-hmm. But what do I know about character? A lot. And I love yeah. these characters. I love the dialogue. I love the situations. And only later did I realize Oh my God, this is a musical. <laughs> <laughs> you were hoodwinked into a musical. We've all done that. We've heard all happened to us. This little little line in the script, one eighth of a page that says, and they go in the disco and they dance. I go, oh my God, this is three minutes of screen time. What yeah. are we going to do for three minutes for screen time? We're going to dance. We're just going to dance. That's what we're going to do. And John's going to strut. And, and, yeah. and Robert hands me a tape cassette. You, get, you guys are probably too young to remember tape cassettes, right? Yeah, we, no. I think we're older than we look. Those, yes. those, funny, well, those funny little square things. <laughs> yeah. You need a pencil to rewind uh, it. Yes. yes. That's, that's right. You have a pencil always with you. So Robert hands me this little tape cassette and he says, now here's some songs the Bee Gees wrote. And there's three number one hits on here. And I thought, well, that's pretty arrogant. Three number one <laughs> hits. You know, of course how, it is. How in the hell do you know what's a hit and what's not a hit? Nobody knows. You know, yeah. until they, and I mean, I was eventually, I was proven right. There were not three number one hits on there. There were four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you were right. So, yes. yes so this was all with about two weeks of prep then. That's right. Oh my lord! Wow! So, what did you do in that two weeks to get yourself ready to shoot this? Did you? I mean, did you, I mean how did I'm, you get up I'm to literally, speed? I'm editing the script on the airplane as I'm going, you know, from Los Angeles to New York, mm-hmm. and and we start the first day, you know, looking for locations. I'm at almost every waking hour. I'm going into discos, which is <laughs> meaning meaning usually at night because they're only open, and sure. and most of them don't get good till one or two in the morning. Mm, I know, remember. If they open up at nine o'clock, it's pretty boring until about that one or two. Uh, so I'm going around to discos trying to figure out, you know, what's the right kind of disco. Plus we're seeing actors, we're finding other locations. Uh, I'm, I'm working with the, uh, with the uh, production designer and the costume designer on, uh, you know, how it's going to look. And we decided that Everything in the costume department had to come off the rack. We were not going to be making any costumes. It needed to look so contemporary and and so much a film of the moment uh, that that was very important. All of our locations were to be practical. We were not building one single set. Uh, All we did in the disco was the one we settled on, which was the one that was in the New York Magazine article, it had this horrible old beat up wooden floor and we found this disco floor that you could put in, you could order it, say, I need it 30 by 40 feet. 
And they'd say, great, what colors do you want? Well, I'd like red, green, and blue. Okay, great. Wouldn't you like some amber? Oh, okay, if you want. Good. <laughs> but we were such a cheap production that in the, in the background of the disco on the walls, my production designer, Charles Bailey, brings in rolls of aluminum foil and starts hanging them like wallpaper all across cool. and hanging little kind of Christ white Christmas tree lights on front of them. And so everything is sparkling in the background. And if you look closely at the film in the, in the disco scenes, you can see that it's aluminum foil back there. I think it's some on the roof as well, I think. I oh, I probably so, yes. <laughs> but we said, you know what? You can see all the lights. You can see, I, want, I told the DP, Ralph Boda, I said, I want to see all of your lights in here. You know, they're all part of the, part of the scene. It's okay to see them. So we were just working like the wind, which was another virtue of my having done a lot of television that I was used to going, going, rounds. Yeah. going quickly and, and moving fast. And we had a few scenes to do before we moved into the disco about six weeks into, into shooting. We had done a lot of work outside and then, you know, come in and spent the last of our uh, shooting time inside inside the disco and again it was you remember my 38 day 52 day story mm -hmm. on bingle same deal here 38 days you're going to shoot this in and it becomes 52 days wow uh, because we again we all knew about shooting dialogue but shooting dance it takes a while and yeah, people, it's like an action scene yeah it's got to be yeah. done right I mean, if Travolta is doing this amazing four-minute dance that's so completely physical, you're out afterwards, you're out of business for a good half an hour, 45 minutes, while he, A, recovers, B, changes his drenched white suit into mm. another drenched white suit. <laughs> it was hanging up in the back. It was, was still not dry properly, yeah. Still not uh, dry because somebody was trying to dry it with yeah. a hairdryer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, by the end of the that. day, these, these suits were so funky. You just mm. give them, put a piece of paper with the address of the dry cleaner in, in the pocket and they'd walk down to the dry cleaner by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but there's, amaz there's an amazing kind of blend of realism. We talked about Sidney Lumet earlier, and it's got that kind of Sidney Lumet realism with his working life, and then combined with the wonderful escapism of the dance scenes. And that's kind of, it's a really amazing combination, um, which he managed to achieve with that film, I think. Well, I, I, I think I, I definitely owe a lot to Scorsese for Mean Streets, mm. and, and owe a lot to, to Rocky. You know, because the gritty, the gritty quality. I mean, I saw the film as something along those, along those lines. And even though my knowledge of Brooklyn was Zippo, I said, "Well, let's pretend that I'm I'm a British uh, documentarian and I'm coming here. And what do I do? I shoot what I see." Yep, absolutely. And that's usually more interesting. I always find if I, you know, I look at LA and go, oh my God, I could shoot this. I could look. And other people who live there just go, oh God, it's horrible. And they think the same about the UK. They go, oh my God, look how, you know, exotic it is. And we all sort of go, well, it's not. We've been here. But you can put your own voice on that and your own take on what you think looks good. And I think you did that brilliantly with Saturday Night Fever. Um, really well done. Did, did you expect the success to be like it was? 
you know uh, and did you think that that was going to happen even though you're making you knew something good and you knew John was potentially this big star did you think it would break out as much as it did no and still be talked about today I never I never ever thought that I thought it was good I thought it was wonderful it played nicely uh the preview audiences were okay they were not great I mean the the preview audiences for Bingo Long were much better uh and I remember playing it in Atlanta, and it was just kind of so-so. Um, and Robert Stigwood was the one who was the great believer in it and, and who was saying, no, it's going to be terrific. And he got the Paramount uh, marketing people all excited about it. But the main Paramount executives were, I don't know. They kept begging me to take more profanity out of the script. Uh, you know, right. to bl- bland it, bland it down a little right. bit. So when it when it opened, it was suddenly an instant smash. I mean, it was a huge, huge first weekend in uh, in Los Angeles in in Westwood. With it was in the the main the National Theater, which is right in Westwood and their their flagship theater. And and I went by there at ten o'clock on the Friday night it opened. And the line was literally, literally around the block. Wow. For the midnight show. Oh. Because the 10 o'clock show was already sold out, as had been the 8 o'clock, the 6 o'clock, and the 4 in the afternoon show. Uh, Incredible. It was, it, it was, it was uh, such a surprise that when they told the head of, of, of Paramount, who was Barry Diller at the time, how much it had made over the weekend... He accused them of being wrong and having put too many zeros in those figures. <laughs> that must have felt great for you, though, right? To just go, well, I'm making this little movie and look how well it's done. That must have felt great, right? Oh, You're in the top of the world. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I, I loved it. That, you know, people enjoyed it. And, the, you know, it's always a thrill when you have ideas and, and you can see them being responded to by the audience, you know, that joke worked or that that particular moment worked. Was there anything you did camera-wise or anything you did directing-wise at that point now where you were learning some of the stuff that's in your book, some of the stuff over the time that you thought, ah, okay, because you've now done a load of TV movies, you've now done a feature film with some big stars, and now you've just done this big movie, Saturday Night Fever. By this point, have you learned how actors are had you learned camera you know techniques anything like that by this point were you already sort of going i think i know how this works thank goodness you're always learning something i mean with with actors it never stops till the day you retire or they nail you in the box there's always new challenges uh with with acting you know because because the performers are always different that's one of the things that keeps it exciting you know Mm. every every day is a brand new day. It's not like you're standing on an assembly line with your actors, you know, putting wheels on Chevrolets. Uh, you know, you're dealing with individual problems. So that that's always exciting. And uh, and camera, we were just getting used to using Steadicam at that point. All right. And and discovering, you know, what it could do and what kind of range of motion we had. Um, so always looking for for new ways to to you know to tell stories uh mm-hmm. is is something that i continue to this day i'm one of the 
the big advocates of the digital revolution and, and you know, trying uh, spend a lot of time trying to talk networks into, into shooting uh, movies of the week uh, digitally in, instead of film, you know, because you could see it's coming and you can't resist it. You know, let's try it. Let's see what it's like. Maybe it'll be exciting. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so much always to learn. Now we see what's happening with, with, with uh, programs like The Mandalorian, where the technology has gone up, you know, a whole other level from, from you know, a director who's an actor, really, John Favreau is a, is a wonderful actor. And, and, and you, you might not necessarily think of uh, somebody who started as an actor being a, a great technician also, but to invent the way that he did the Jungle Book and, and now the Mandalorian, you know, has taken us in, in a whole new direction. All of that's very exciting stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it must be for you. It's like you say, coming from film, literally now to digital, must be fascinating. Um, but I, I wanted to talk about Dracula as well a little bit, because after Saturday Night Fever, you must be now hot. You're a hot director. You've got a hit movie out. Were you in a position where you could go, okay, I can pick and choose a little more, or was things throwing at you, or, or were you still developing and finding your own journey? What, what happened next? I did start looking at a lot of things and, and something that appealed to me. Universal came to me and and asked me to to look at the Dracula. So I went to New York and saw Frank Langella on stage there, which was quite an exciting uh, performance, uh, but something that was designed specifically for stage. But definitely we have one of the most romantic leading men that we've had in decades, Frank Langella. We, we can make something that is very romantic and quite lush and, and, and go back to the original Bram, Bram Stoker novel, of Dracula, not just adapt the Dracula play, which we had seen as the Dracula movie with Bela Lugosi. So we said, let's go back to the book. Let's tell something that the way the book was originally and work from that. We set, we set that up and we're fortunate to get Laurence Olivier uh, to, no. to agree to be in it. And he was had been very sick and and had recovered from a really nasty cancer uh and 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 was feeling up to working and he wanted to work uh he wanted to stay busy and we said this is great how can we turn down Lawrence olivier uh, and and he brought all of his professionalism and and talent to it and and the and the respect of the other actors was amazing you know, the, the greatest actor of the 20th century, British actor, certainly, uh, if not, if not the greatest, is certainly in the top five. Well, I'm Frank, Frank Langella as well. I thought he was just fantastic. He was like so watchable. It was just extraordinary. I mean, I, to be fair, I've watched a lot of people. I hadn't watched that until, until recently. I was just sort of blown away by his, his performance track. It was so beautiful, sort of layered and, and vivid and just real. It's like a first time I've seen, I think I've seen him as a real person as well as a vampire. But, you know, it's just, yeah, fantastic to watch. It's a very different kind of Dracula. It's like much more seductive yeah. than, the, than the Bela Lugosi um, films. So, yeah, it was definitely a, a unique spin. The principle of it was quite simply, evil can be very attractive. And, and when we start thinking about many of the evil things in our lives, 
uh, say drugs, alcohol, gambling, things like that. Those are, those are, you know, kind of maybe petty addictions, but they're very attractive to people. And, you know, if somebody comes in looking like Bella Lugosi, lots of luck on getting close to him. Uh, <laughs> but somebody comes in looking like Frank Langella, boy, he's got everybody, you know, everybody snookered. And yeah. they're all coming after him like crazy, and he's got them. So, so evil, evil can take many faces. You did a great job, you know, and you have for so many of your movies, you know, I've just, I listed, you know, six or seven there that are all just fantastic and we've all heard of and are just wonderful. What, what did you prefer and what are techniques you could take from, say, an action film that you couldn't from a drama as a director? Tips for our listeners out there between the two? One thing we know about action scenes is that they have very clear goals in them that, the, that the characters in the in the scene are after, and and you have to outline those goals. They have strong beginnings, strong middles, and strong ends. They 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 have to have a, a little their own little arc and their own little path. So when you start talking about action scenes, you have to go in and define, you know, what's the goal of it? What are the different ways that they try to get to this goal? If we're if we're talking about say blue thunder with a you know helicopters chasing one another, we we have to we have to realize you know it's not just one helicopter comes by and the next helicopter comes by, then the next, then one and the next, because that's all going to be very boring. You have to figure out incidents just like in any kind of dramatic scene where you need to have have actors changing their changing the way they go after their goals and yeah. and is saying, well, I tried this. Now let me try this instead. Oh, okay. That didn't work. Now let me try this. That that's something that is going to happen in any decent dramatic scene. And uh, you can't just have the Cowboys chasing the Indians, chasing the Cowboys, chasing the Indians. There's things have to happen in mm. this, in the big stagecoach uh, in the movie stagecoach. You know, you you watch the uh, you watch the stagecoach desperately trying to get away from the Indians chasing them, and the Indians a get closer and closer. Then one of them jumps off the their horse onto the stagecoach's horses and tries to stop it. Now the stagecoach uh, guys have to try to you know get rid of that guy, get rid of that Indian who's on the front. You know, it's it's action reaction, action reaction. You do the same in dramatic scenes. If you don't have that, you're going to have a, I don't care how exciting it is, it's going to be deadly because you're not mm -hmm. invested in, you know, how this is growing and building and getting you more involved as you worry about the jeopardy of the, of the characters in, in, in the scene. Oh, my God, this guy is really going to get killed. Oh, my God, this is really dangerous. You got to, you, you know, that's one of the big things that you better be promoting as you're making the action happen. Oh, no, no, the, the scene with the, 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 in Blue Thunder with the helicopter sort of chase um, with uh, Malcolm McDowell as well. I mean, I mean, obviously we know, you know, the goodies tend to win, but they genuinely sort of go, oh, 
this this could actually go genuinely really wrong. You know, it, it, it's just so so beautifully sort of paced. And you know, I'm not a huge sort of actiony sort of person, but you sort of watch those, you know, that, that scene, and you you're absolutely in the helicopter sort of with them as well. It's yeah, it's it makes it makes a huge difference. Where you know, I think I feel like a lot of modern stuff occasionally, uh, especially with the CG stuff, um, I find it really hard to sort of get on board with it as in from an emotional sort of point of view but um you know seeing like that in blue thunder you're just absolutely there with them absolutely and you mentioned in your book about that how you had to trim that scene down and how you at first were like well what's wrong with it it's a great you know four minute action scene or whatever and then you realized there was no purpose and then when you re- you put that in within the edit by trimming down to what's important and what's happening then the scene worked for you which i think is really interesting how do you find the editing side now as things changed in terms of from when you first started to now as a director bringing your voice into that well the technique has just shifted so radically that now you know, almost anybody can learn the mechanics of, of editing, you know, in in a very short amount of time. All of my students, you know, they take uh, avid boot classes uh, and, and, and you know, learn, learn the, the rough basics of how to do it. Whereas uh, doing it on film is much more difficult and time consuming. Suddenly, you know, you're able to do some editing really, really, really quickly. <clears throat> and it's not taking nearly as much time. That means that when I go into the cutting room with the editor, we can try so many more ideas and versions of things because it's not such a big chore to make a change. You know, before you'd say, oh, I remember there was a good take. Didn't we have take three? And was that pretty good? Oh, yeah, yeah, we did. Well, let's see that. Now, some assistant has to get on a ladder, climb up, find take three in a box, bring it down. We thread it through the moviola. We go, oh, no, that's not as good as I thought. Oh, shit, okay. So now, now you know, we're suddenly in the old days, we're thinking, I think take three was better, but we don't have time to go up and climb up that ladder and do all that stuff and get that film and find out that it's not really good. So you blow it off. Nowadays, if I say, let's look at take three, boom, it's up. It's up. We check it. We try ideas. We, you know, we don't like it. We just reset it to where it was. And, and this just helps the creativity of things so much, so much more. Some people complain that it's too fast, that you really need time to think about stuff and you need time to walk away and come back and and be fresh and not try to lock everything down so quickly. And I suppose there is some some benefit to that. Um, so it's always nice when you've, when you've got a cut of something to be able to walk away from it for two or three days and, and come back and, and get a fresh look at it. Um, but um, now, nowadays, even I will actually attempt to go in and do some simple editing, which I never would before, because I would just wind up with sticky pieces of tape all over my hands <laughs> and have, have gummed up the entire film and, and ruined everything. But now I can go in and gum it up 
without doing that and they can retrieve it and put it back the way it should have been before I got my hands on it. Do you think um, you getting more involved in the editing has helped you as a director? Um, you know, sort of, I know you're getting your hands dirty as such anymore, but to sort of be more part of uh, that, the visceral sort of putting it together, do you then take that on to set? Oh, of course. Of course you do, because you, you, you have a much better idea of what you really need. If you're just out there kind of shooting newsreel, you know, shooting everything, coverage of everybody. And, uh, you know, after after a while in the editing room, you're saying, I don't need that. I don't need that. Or I just need a quick look from this person. You know, don't spend mm -hmm. any time on this. You know, yeah, they're terrible. It doesn't matter. I just want, you know, a look there because I know what I'm going to use. You know, I, I know that not to pay too much attention because this scene is really from this character's point of view. And so the fact that this character is weak doesn't matter to me. That's an interesting point there. You say about what point of view is the scene from? And I think, yeah, we touched on it a bit before, but I think that's really important, isn't it? Whose scene is it? How, how do you work that out when you look at the script? Because sometimes it does change. You can have two points of view. You discuss that as well. But how do you know when's the point that you choose as a director to go, okay, it's this person's point of view? Well, in, in analyzing the script, you know, you know who are, some stories follow one character a lot. So that in Saturday Night Fever, you know, we have pretty much one character's point of view. John Travolta is in virtually every scene in the movie. I think there's like one scene in the movie where, where he may not be. But, you know, it's totally from his point of view. Um, you know, it's all about how he sees the world and how he reacts to the world. In, uh, in my little film with Johnny Depp called Nick of Time, you know, it's about how Johnny Depp's character sees the world and is terrified for his daughter who's been been kidnapped for him and how how in the hell is this poor cpa gonna gonna assassinate the governor of california which is such a ridiculous idea but you know he's stuck with having to do it so so the the story is going to tell you if you just look at it and you say who's got the most to lose here that's a good question to ask you know who's uh who, who are we seeing this the movie? How, how are we seeing it? And so how can we tell the movie? Uh, in, in, how can we tell the story in the best way? Now, I've been looking recently at this wonderful film with uh, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, Marriage Story. And there's some fabulous, fabulous scenes in there that are just, you know, point of view. They're so strongly point of view that you know it's you you could tell the director really knew what he was doing um there's a scene early on where adam driver is trying to direct uh his broadway cast in a in a play he's rehearsing and he gets a call from his wife's lawyer he goes out into the stairwell to talk to her and and while he's talking to her people keep interrupting him from the play Costume designer comes out with clothes to be picked. An actor comes and wants to change a line of dialogue. Stage manager comes and says the break is over and we've got to go back. And meanwhile, he's having to talk to this lawyer who's bullying him into, uh, in, into agreeing to something he doesn't want to agree to. What's wonderful about it is you never see the lawyer. We're only seeing Adam Driver. And... 
You know, it's so totally his point of view of a guy being assaulted from all sides, not just not just a, a divorce attorney, but the whole play, his whole life. I mean, his whole life is coming in on, and, and beating up on him. And we don't see any, you know, virtually anybody else. Or if we see the people from the play, it's only in long shot. I mean, it's so such a strong point of view um, that, you know, it, it, it's very, very uh, great example of, of that phenomenon and how, how powerful a storytelling tool it is. And, and if we went back and recut it, uh, assuming that he, he would have shot footage of, of Laura Dern as the lawyer on the other side, I bet you it would weaken that scene so much uh, by, you know, by having, having that, you know, it start to become more about her than, than, than about him. Very bold choice. If you could, would you prefer film or TV now? I know you're doing a lot of TV at the moment, but in your heyday, you were, you know, smashing feature films out. Short Circuit, Short Circuit is one of my favourites of all time <laughs> oh, growing up as a you. kid. Oh, Just a brilliant mine. film. But War, War Games again, yeah. Matthew Broderick. You know, looking back now, if you could do both, if you could still be making films like War Games and, and Short Circuit and Saturday Night Fever, now, as opposed to making TV, what would you like to do? What what's what did you prefer, and what tips could you give to filmmakers who aren't sure or don't know which direction to go in? Well, there's no question that it's uh, it's much more fun to be involved in a, in a film where you have very strong control and you're not you know so much of a gun for hire. I stay with I stay with the television with my friend John Frankenheimer once observed to me, he said, I never thought you could learn anything about directing by not directing. That's yeah. what he said. And, and I, th I think, you know, I, I love being able to, to be on the floor and work with actors and try to tell the story. I would much rather be in something where I didn't have to, you know, pay so much attention to what the producers need and what the brand is. But, you know, I'm game. I say, no, I'm here. I love doing it. I'd rather be doing it than not doing it. That says it all, doesn't it? Absolutely amazing. Uh, and John, this has been unbelievable. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it massively. I just want to say thank you for the book as well. I think it's going to help sort of so many directors. I think also the actors um, should, re should read this book as well, I think. You know, I think it'll be so helpful from a screen acting point of view. Um, so I just want to thank I, I teach screen actors, so I'm definitely going to be recommending this uh, to a lot of people. Because um, it's, it's, it's so nice that it doesn't, it's not, sort of a how-to book it ask you ask us questions and you you know um and you remind us as directors to ask questions on set rather than saying you should be doing this should be doing this it is and i and i definitely forget as well with all you know hundreds of things going on 50 people asking you questions and then you know you asking yourself some of those lovely simple questions in your checklist i just think it's yeah i think it's such a, an amazing tool for for directors you know either new or, or established um so then i just want to say thank you Oh, Fantastic. well, thank you. Thank you. I'm so, I'm so glad it's helpful. Yeah, it really is. Uh, on directing, uh, it's pretty much available now. We'll be putting links to that in the show notes. Um, so yeah, how exciting. It's wonderful. Uh, John, do you have a social presence, a social media presence? Can people find you online at all? We're doing little videos here in my office, you know, based on, on, on lessons about how to, how to avoid getting into fights with your actors. 
you know, <laughs> what's, what's the advantage of coming to the set early? You know, what can you achieve by getting there half an hour before a call? Things oh, like that. And, and so we're, we're going to be, you know, putting a lot of these out on social media. Well, look out for that hopefully by the time this goes out that will be ready for you all and I'll give the link to that as well if not it'll be on our Twitter which is at Filmmakers Pod uh, you can follow me at Giles Alderson Matt where can people follow you uh, you can either follow our company Fizz and Ginger or me um, M Butler Hart on Twitter Okay. There you go, and your new um, film Infinitum. But I, I, thanks for the shout-outs preview. It's as as in ad infinitum, but it's just infinitum. Exciting. Yeah, and Robbie, and I'm Robbie McCain on Twitter. There you go. Uh, this has been amazing. John has been a fantastic guest for you all to listen to. I hope you've learned something, but you will learn more from his amazing book on directing uh, by John Badham. Uh, remember, you can go make your indie film. You can go do it. Uh, remember who your audience is and get out there and get on it. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, as John has done, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. Until next <laughs> Tuesday, we will see you all then. Thank you all so much for listening. Take care. Mm. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. you.